Hello, my name is Dr. Peggy Gunter from the American Society for Parenteral and Enteral Nutrition, or ASPEN. Today, we are bringing you a podcast featuring some of the recommendations from the ASPEN consensus statement, When is Enteral Nutrition Indicated? This paper was published in JPEN in 2022. We are here with two of the authors, Ms. Christina Schwartz, MSRD, from Northwestern Medicine, Warrenville Cancer Center in Warrenville, Illinois, and Nathan Schober, MSRD, of City of Hope, Atlanta, in Noonan, Georgia. Today, we will be focusing on enteral nutrition in the oncology patient, both those with solid tumors, as well as those undergoing hemopoietic stem cell transplantation. I'd like to thank Cardinal Health for their support bringing this podcast to you today. Okay, Ms. Schwartz, we'd like to start with you. Could you please give us an example of the type of patient you wrote about in the paper and the impact of cancer and its treatment on their nutritional status? Sure. Thanks, Peggy. I'm glad to be here with you and Nathan today. Um, I primarily work in outpatient oncology. Before a patient undergoes a hematopoietic stem cell transplant, I would see them in the pre-treatment or myoablative conditioning phase. One case that comes to mind whose cancer treatment had an impact on their nutrition status was a patient diagnosed with multiple myeloma. They had a clinically significant 15-pound weight loss before they were diagnosed. They were just having a lot of issues with pain and anorexia. Malnutrition is a well-known predictor of transplant-related morbidity, mortality, and relapse risk. So preventing and treating malnutrition was a really important goal leading up to transplant for this patient. They started chemo, Revlimid, Valcade, and dexamethasone. So they did have some nausea and constipation as a side effect of that treatment, but they were able to achieve a 10-pound weight gain. Increased appetite is definitely a benefit of steroid therapy, so that helped. And then we also worked to manage some of those side effects, so increasing bowel motility with fluid and fiber. The MedOnc team prescribed antiemetics. And then some other little tricks for nausea management, like ginger, peppermint, bland diet, hydration. The patient was considered high risk based on genetic testing abnormalities. So they were a candidate for consolidative autologous transplant using their own stem cells. So the goal is to improve their nutrition status at the pre-treatment phase with the intent of improving post-transplant outcomes, which I think we achieved in the pre-treatment or kind of neoadjuvant setting for this patient. Okay, thanks so much. Nathan, could you give us an example of the type of patient that you wrote about in this paper? And again, the impact of cancer and its treatment on their nutritional status. Yes, and uh, I echo Christina's uh, sentiment. Thank you and, and everybody for having us here today. We enjoyed writing the paper and enjoyed talking about this subject, so thank you. More in general, we were focusing on solid tumors, non-head and neck for the, the population that we were talking about. So we talked about a lot of it in the paper, but these would be the patients that would be being seen on the outpatient side with a, a dietitian or nutrition professional that is looking for signs and symptoms of malnutrition, working with the team to get appetite stimulants like megesterol or dronabinol or mirtazapine or, or some kind of agent and doing oral nutrition supplements and doing small frequent meals and symptom management and all those things, but still haven't been able to prevent the development of malnutrition using Aspen and A&D guidelines. And then are showing up 
an inpatient or for or what have you for whatever complication during their treatment. So let's say it's a, a colon cancer patient or a lung cancer patient that is, you know, halfway through their their treatment cycles for their chemotherapy, and despite us doing everything that we could by maximizing oral intake, and they're not at the end of their treatment life, you know, they're not at fully palliative or expect less than three months of, of survival yet or anything, that we should be aggressive as far as our nutrition support with offering them uh, enteral support during those times. So that's really what we were focusing on is the not waiting as long and focusing on getting these people support so that we're not losing nutrition status and trying to dig out from uh, a calorie deficit, a protein deficit, and letting people get weaker and frailer while they're going through treatment. So the solid tumors for non-head and neck and being uh, very aggressive as far as when the other things aren't working and we're still trying to maximize those things, even if we do use enteral intake, would be the people that we were, we were talking about in our paper. Okay, great. Christina, for the patient you described earlier, and I know stem cells are pretty tricky, when might you consider enteral as the primary nutrition therapy? Yeah, so for this patient, they tolerated their stem cell harvest well. Then they received nemalphalan for conditioning, which was day negative one when they were admitted to the hospital. When stem cells are reinfused on day zero, they're given in a preservative, and sometimes this causes symptoms like nausea dysphagia, and the preservative metabolite is exhaled. So there's a very unusual, distinct smell on the breath, which can also kind of contribute to nausea. And then during engraftment, when the blood counts recover, this typically takes 10, 11-ish days. During this time, there are a lot of side effects that can interfere with meeting nutrition needs. So mouth changes like dry mouth or mucositis with bleeding ulcers, GI symptoms, nausea, vomiting, diarrhea. This patient in particular had anorexia, just had no interest in eating, taste changes, foods were tasting very off, nausea, and then diarrhea started on day plus five. So kind of like how Nathan talked about attempting nutrition interventions first, so small frequent meals, using a nutrition supplement, a fiber modified diet to address the diarrhea, and then pharmacotherapy for the nausea and diarrhea. But for this patient, their intakes were consistently meeting less than 60% of their estimated needs. So an NG tube was placed and EN started on day plus seven from transplant. So this would be consistent with the guidelines that were proposed in our paper. Since the patient was well-nourished before admission because, you know, she had lost the weight and then regained it, it would be appropriate to start nutrition support by day seven. And also kind of anticipating that the patient probably wouldn't continue to meet their nutrition needs for maybe another 7 to 14 days because they had ongoing nutrition impacting symptoms and had not yet engrafted. So had the patient been moderately or severely malnourished, the guidelines do recommend starting EN as soon as feasible after transplant. So again, so how Nathan was saying, just minimizing that nutrition deficit. Using EN after a transplant is effective in preventing decline toward malnutrition and that deficit, like I mentioned, but there's also evidence that it can reduce the risk for graft versus host disease, which is a pretty serious complication. And it's primarily for patients who undergo an allogeneic stem cell transplant or those who receive stem cells from a donor. So this patient used her own stem cells. There is some risk. So in general, starting at day 
plus seven was appropriate for the patient. And it was an important intervention to preserve gut integrity, support immune function, preserve muscle tissue, and prevent decline in their nutrition status. So it's either plus seven days if they're well-nourished or aim for as soon as possible if they're moderately to severely malnourished following transplant. Interesting. So Nathan, I know you talked about it a little bit already, but can you tell us more specifically what the guidelines were in terms of when to start these patients on enteral nutrition? Yes. Uh, So we had recommended that using enteral nutrition when you're unable to receive oral intake greater than 60 to 75%, there's a little bit of a a leeway there from the, the literature. The goal nutrient intake if they present with moderate to severe malnutrition. So trying to do it as soon as feasible and those people that are are showing up that aren't able to get enough in and are needing assistance. And then in those who are unable or to be unable to tolerate greater than 60% of energy and protein by mouth, despite all the other interventions that we talked about before, they could wait up to seven to 14 days to initiate EN if they were previously well-nourished. But uh, going back and, and reassessing at regular intervals to make sure that it's not developing and we're missing it in the interim. Okay. So, Christina, once the patient you describe or was on enteral or, or patients that you see are on enteral, how would you monitor them and manage any complications? I know they already have a lot of complications, but then when yeah. you overlay enteral on top of it, sometimes that adds more on. And how, how would you monitor them and, and manage these complications? It certainly compounds with the, the more they have going on. But, you know, with any patient, EN, judicious monitoring of weight trends, GI symptoms, tolerance to the formula, electrolyte, and endocrine profiles. But for the stem cell transplant patients in particular, kind of monitoring for unique risks associated with the use of EN. So aspiration, change in gut motility, ileus, gastroparesis, diarrhea, the mucositis that I had mentioned, and then sinusitis related to the use of nasoenteric tubes. So there could be an increased risk for local bleeding and epistaxis in this group because of the thrombocytopenia after their conditioning and transplant. And then another issue for them could be increased rates of tube displacement just with more forceful vomiting with severe nausea. The patient in this case study developed diarrhea, like I'd mentioned. So that was primarily managed with medication, but then also a psyllium fiber supplement was added as a bulking agent. So that was effective for improving the stool consistency and decreasing frequency before deciding to change formula or anything like that. Unfortunately, in some cases with graft-versus-host disease of the gut mucosa or GI symptoms refractory to pharmacological interventions or any of those attempts to improve tolerance to EN, like changing the formula or the schedule, it would be indicated to transition to either supplemental or full parenteral nutrition support. Okay, that's really helpful. Nathan, what do you think about that? How do you monitor and manage the complications in the patients? And and it might be helpful if you also talk about things that would happen inpatient versus home. Uh, Yes, inpatient versus home are very different ways to to manage and monitor these people. I think regardless of where they are, education before you do the intervention is one way to to help to prevent it so that the patient can one, be their own advocate 
and two, know what to look for and, and raise the red flag before there's a, a more serious complication. So an inpatient, if we were starting this and say it was a G-tube, so not through the nose or, or any of those things, we would still be monitoring them typically three times a week with one day in between, typically one to two days in between to see how tolerance is going, to see how the placement is going, make sure that there's no irritation at the tube site, to make sure that there's no adjustments that need to be made to the feeding tube for comfort or to prevent leakage and how the dressing is doing. And if we need to involve wound care or other disciplines to make sure that the site is okay. And then ensuring tolerance and monitoring their bowel movements and I's and O's and their subjective tolerance to the formulas and everything on inpatient with regular nutrition assessments. And then on outpatient would follow up Typically, what we do would be if we started them on EN on the inpatient side, we would see them in clinic within seven days of discharge to make sure that everything went okay going home, that they got their formula, that they're still tolerating it now that all the medicines and extra assistance from nursing and everybody else that they have on inpatient has left and make sure that that is going okay before they restart their outpatient treatments and everything. And then based on how that initial assessment goes, then changing how we follow up after that. If they're having baseline problems or not quite there or some things that we're concerned about, we're probably going to see them every time that they're coming back to the clinic for their treatments, you know, two, three weeks or what have you, and making sure that they have nutrition support, clinicians, phone numbers and emails and everything to keep us in the loop if they need us before then. And then once they start doing well, switching that out to where we're touching base, you know, every couple months. And then once we get to where we're able to encourage by mouth again, then talking about what those next steps are after that. Great. So um, sort of to wrap this up and bring it back in the continuum of care, can both of you comment, first Christina, on when you believe the patients sort of reach their EN goals and then how you would transition them to home or to discontinue the enteral therapy. Okay, so the patient from the case that I reviewed received EN through her NG tube for 14 days until diarrhea and nausea were well managed to a point where they were able to resume oral intakes adequate to meet 60% of their nutrient needs. And this was demonstrated by a calorie count in the hospital. The patient was discharged home two days after EN was discontinued. And then in the outpatient setting, they were closely followed during maintenance therapy, monitoring weight trends, tolerance to oral intake, GI symptoms. And it's pretty interesting for stem cell transplant patients in that relapse rates continue to be affected by weight change even after hospital discharge post-engraftment after their transplant. So there were quite a few papers that I'd referenced in this JPEN paper about weight change being studied in post-transplant patients over the next three months when they were discharged. So for patients who lose 10% of their weight during that time, there's almost 27% increase in two-year non-relapse mortality risk versus those who lose less than 5% of their weight have less than 4% non-relapse mortality so although mortality wasn't related to their disease, it's still important to note that maintaining nutrition can really protect these patients after transplant from mortality, even if it's due to causes other than diseased relapse. Wow, that's so interesting. Okay, Nathan, anything else you want to add? You talked about transition to home a little bit. And 
we talked a little bit about successfully reaching your EN goals. Can you talk about that a little bit and how tough that is to get people on their goals and then how to get them off? Yeah, definitely a challenge. They have a lot of things working against them emotionally and physically while they're going through everything. The goals would be to get them to not be ranking as malnourished on Aspen and A&D guidelines anymore. So making sure that they're getting enough calories, protein, vitamins, and minerals through the EN. And then as we're optimized, we always say when we put these, these feeding tubes into people that it doesn't mean that you can't eat by mouth for, you know, if they are still able to eat by mouth and they don't have an obstructing tumor that's preventing them from doing that or whatnot. But if we're using this to get them over the hump and protect their nutrition status and their performance status while we're working the problem, that's definitely what we're doing. We're not we referenced in the, the paper a decision tree that has been used in several different papers at this point, but you know, still working on finding the right balance of medications and behavioral education and recipes and oral nutrition supplements and all those things to work them towards where they're able to maintain themselves. And typically we would say, at least in our clinic, that when we have these feeding tubes, as we tell people, once they feel like they're eating and they, we found the right mixture of everything to where they can keep it up is to stop using the feeding tube, flush it every day. And then if they're able to maintain themselves for about a month, then that's when we talk about discontinuing it altogether and getting the hardware out of the patient and all those things and just leaving them to eating by mouth. So it's a little bit of a process and is very different for everybody. And you have to take everybody's treatment and plans and everything into consideration, but uh, is very rewarding. And I think the people that get the support really appreciate that they didn't get weaker during that time and that we gave them support while we were figuring out how to best treat them while they were going through. Great, great. This is so helpful. So thank you so much. On behalf of Aspen, I'd like to thank our speakers today for this interesting, engaging discussion about this paper and also thank Cardinal Health for your support. Thanks for listening and have a good day.